Hello and welcome to Ducks on the Pond, a podcast for rural women by rural women. I'm Kirsten Diprose. And I'm Jackie Elliott. On this second part of The Road Less Travelled, we meet two amazing women. One is an award-winning author and the other is a wine producer with her own wine label. But their road to success was not easy and the path that they used to get there certainly wasn't paved. It was bumpy. Uh, rocky, even. <laughs> More of a roller coaster than a path, really, Kirsten. True. I'm just trying to keep this road metaphor alive here. We were living in a $4 million house in New York. You know, Ferraris in the driveway, flew on private planes. We had a 58-foot Italian yacht in the Huntington Harbour. It was nuts. And I look back now and it's embarrassing. And basically I was left alone to die and... I just had this vision of my body being dumped down the gulag prison and no one would ever know that I'd been there. You just heard from Tanya Heaslip, an Alice Springs-based author and lawyer who writes about the contrast of her experiences growing up in Central Australia with her sometimes perilous adventures in Central Europe. And before that, you heard from Jane Richards, who has a winery in South Australia. Which she says saved her when her crazy New York life came crashing down. These women have two very different stories, but have certainly taken the road less traveled, for better and for worse. And I guess the question is, is that road for you? Let's meet Jane. My name is Jane Richards and my sister and I, Claire, have a vineyard at Rattenbully in South Australia, which is just near the Victorian border between Narraport and Coonora. And we have 500 acres there. We grow some black suffix and crossbred sheep, as well as 60 hectares of vineyard. So we produce about 600 tonne of grapes a year, of which most of it goes to other wine companies. And they're all names that you'd be familiar with, Treasury, or, or sorry, Penfolds, Orlando, Taylors, companies like that, as well as a number of small locals. And then we keep the best stuff for our own wine label, which is called Eight at the Gate. And so... That wine's available in Australia and we've just started exporting to the US. Great. And what kind of varieties can you find in eight at the gate? So the region that we're in, which is part of the Limestone Coast wine region, they're very well known for Cabernet, Sauvignon, Chardonnay, Shiraz, and we also grow Pinot Gris. So in our wine label, we actually only put Chardonnay, Cabernet and Shiraz at the moment. And honestly, that's mostly because... That's what Claire and I like to drink. And if it's hard enough to sell wine as it is without selling wine that you don't like to drink. <laughs> so that's how we sort of started with our label. You know, we'd been growing grapes for all these other wine companies. And of course, through those years, you, you do make some of your own wine to see what it's like. And we started doing that back in 2005. But it took us a long time to put a label on it to, to sort of come up with something a name that we were happy with and proud of and our name references the fact that we have eight children between us so we have four children each hence there was always eight kids hanging off a farm gate or a ute or a fence somewhere so the name eight at the gate sort of brought it all together I guess and then we started with just one white and one red and I'm sort of just growing from there. Wow uh, four kids that's um busy times for you. <laughs> How old are they now? Yeah. Uh, so now the oldest one, they're all really close in age. So the oldest one of 
and we sort of think of them as a group. It really is a bit raised by the village. And the oldest one is 21 and the youngest is 14. So they're all pretty tight in age. And yeah, well, Claire and I came from a large um, family. We're, we're two of five children and we were born and raised in Bordertown, which is literally about an hour from where our vineyard is. So I think the big numbers of kids didn't scare us much. We had such a fantastic childhood, you know, grew up in the country and had access to amazing things that the country has to offer. You know, the beaches, we're only an hour from the beach. Yeah, it's a, it's a great life. And it's really how we ended up buying the vineyard because um, our brother took the family farm. He had to work very hard on that. So uh, there's no, no, um, no hard feelings there. But Claire and I, you know, we'd always been heavily rooted in the country so we sort of it's always been there and we then decided that we wanted to do something ourselves and also to help our father a bit because he was a bit of a frustrated farmer because he had been farming his through his working career and then they moved to the city you know mum wanted to be a bit closer to what some of our kids were doing going to school and uni and all that sort of stuff and so he he enjoys having his little patch of land to come back to so yeah, it's a, it's a bit of family affair. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I love uh, that you and your sister have really joined forces. H- how's that relationship been <laughs> throughout the year? It's funny. It's, so many people ask us that a lot. And we're very different. And I think that's why it works. And we also have our, we, we stay in our lanes a bit. So Claire went to Roseworthy, studied viticulture. So she has all the technical experience of growing grapes. And I came from a corporate world. So I was more in, you know, spreadsheets and deals and marketing and that side of things. So basically she handles everything grapes and I pretty much do all the wine side of things, which of course is a lot more than we ever thought it would be in terms of where we'd be. We didn't expect a global pandemic and a whole bunch of things, but China and everything has um, made things challenging. So yeah, typically our roles are sort of carved out almost by accident, but we very much come together and do things when there's decisions to be made and things like that. It's very much a joint discussion. And Claire's husband, Tom, he lives on the property with with Claire as well, obviously, and he's very hands-on now too. Great. We'll, we'll talk about the sort of global situation in, in a bit, but I, I think so many people, including myself, have this romantic idea about owning a winery. Is that, what, what's it really like to have a, a vineyard and a winery? Yeah, it's it's nothing like that. There's nothing romantic about it. Um, you know, the then there's a very distinct difference too between, so, there's a difference between having a vineyard, a winery and a cellar door. So um, we, we have a vineyard, but we use somebody else's winery to make our wines because that's a massive infrastructure cost. And it just, we actually produce quite a lot of wine some years because if we don't get the price for our grapes, you know, we've been known to crush 200, 250 tonne of fruit for ourselves. So if, if the price is not good at Farmgate, we'll turn that into wine and sell it as what is referred to as bulk wine. That is sort of changing now because a lot of that sort of larger volume stuff would get bought by other companies and put into labels to go to other countries and China being one of the larger ones. So, you know, to have that capacity in a winery is an enormous infrastructure cost. But when it comes to the the romantic side, I think people think that's sort of the cellar door aspect, but that is a cellar door is a huge amount of work. You are open 
literally seven days a week. It often doesn't make sense to hire somebody if you're starting off small. So you're on it seven days a week. And of course, all the major holidays. And, you know, that's when people are traveling and doing wine tastings and things like that. So we're just about to start doing a tasting room, which is sort of, a, I guess, the beginnings of a cellar door, but it's not romantic. It's a lot of hard work. And I think when people join the wine industry, they do have that romantic idea of what it's going to be like. But the reality is it is marketing. If you can't go out and talk about your wine to people or, you know, what you're doing, and everybody always wants to hear from the person who owns the business. It makes such a difference on our, you know, if we do a tasting event, if it's Claire or I at the tasting event, you get a lot better reaction than if you're sending a staff member because at the end of the day, that's they want to talk to you. And so it's it's difficult to duplicate yourself like that. So we've had to come up with more creative ways to try and do that. Like for instance, on our bottles that we're sending to the US, we have put an NFC chip and it's a little, it looks like a sort of a little metal sticker, gold circle that... Um, when you scan your smartphone over it, it pops up with a, a browser window that um, has a video and, you know, so trying to video and information about the wine, trying to replicate that cellar door experience, if you like, you know, you've just, so that the person feels like they've just had a drink with you in the vineyard and therefore feels more connected to your brand and your story. You know, with COVID and not being able to do so many of our events, face-to-face events have been cancelled. It, you've really got to try and get more creative because at the end of the day, we sell most of our wine direct to consumer. So tell me what the situation's like now, obviously China and there's trade embargoes, COVID has made exporting, no doubt, more difficult. What's the wine industry like <laughs> now for you? It's one of those things. It's like when the tariffs first got introduced, obviously that's a massive shock. And, you know, I don't know whether the industry really thought it would go for five years. I think we probably did think it would not get resolved quickly but then when the five years when that happened and for us that happened between picking our white fruit and picking our red fruit so you know we picked our Chardonnay and Pinot Gris and we were still picking Cabernet and Shiraz and literally on that day you get phone calls from five different companies who said they were going to buy your grapes and said they were going to pay x dollars and oh by the way we want half what we said and we want to pay you less you know the impact for the grower was immediate and swift and brutal because we get one crop a year, you know, that's it. Everything we do is for that one crop. And now to get that one crop, we are facing challenges like we've never seen before, the extreme weather events. You know, we have frost we deal with and that that was always our extreme weather event. But we now, you know, two years ago, we dealt with a heat wave in the middle of, I think it was November or December, but it was just one day where it was like 47 degrees or something to that effect and it was right during flowering the fruit drops off literally cut our crop down by 50 percent and that was one crappy heat day um so when you're you're dealing with all of that and you get to the end of the season and you've actually got a crop and this year we had a crop we had we we had three years prior to that for the previous two or three years the yields had been low but this year yield was normal. We had survived all of those acts of mother nature and we got to that day, you know, and then we find out, oh, my God, here we go. <laughs> you know, we've got a crop and we're going to get paid half. That's great. <laughs> so, yeah, that's it's, cha- it's challenging, but, you know, so is farming. That's life, I guess. you just got to keep soldiering on. Otherwise, you're going to fall in a heap on the floor. So, 
you know, we just try to think of different ways to reach our customers and more creative ways to reach our customers, use technology a bit. And part of our plan was export. And, you know, because I had, a, there's a story for us in the US and all four of my children were born in the US. You know, there's an element about that, I guess, that uh, creating a business over there, because I'm sure one, two, three or four of my kids will eventually want to go and see where they came from. And, you know, maybe they can do a few a few months of uh, selling some wine for us. <laughs> so. so you're trying to open up an export market for your own brand in the US at the moment? Yeah, that's right. An importer in the US had actually said they wanted to import our wine. And that was in March of 2020. So that's pretty much got, you know, agreed and disagreed in a very short space of time because you know, they, they were based in Texas. And once COVID hit, nobody knew what was going on. And in fact, the person that we had done that deal with, he was not with the company anymore now. So it's, you know, there's been a, the impact in the US has been pretty big. So, so we actually, instead of waiting for another importer to take us up, we actually self-imported to the US, which is pretty, you sort of, you're all out there, you're on a limb. So we've sent wine to the US under our own importation arrangement. And we're now going through setting up a direct-to-consumer platform, which is definitely not what people, normal people do when they go to the US, they usually look for a distributor to sell their wine for them. And we are looking for distributors as well. But what I've found is having a distributor just gets you on a giant list. It doesn't actually sell your wine. You need to be selling your wine. You need to be doing the promotion and making um, those connections with people. So the only way I can sort of do that well is on a direct to consumer basis. And hopefully find a way to reach, you know, it's a very big market and we're very small. So we don't need to be in everybody's lounge room or on everybody's wine list. We just need a few successes and we, we should do pretty well. That's so interesting. Jane is really quite innovative in her approach to marketing wine and opening new markets. Yeah, the wine industry has certainly taken a few hits recently and all at once. And when that happens, it really forces you to get off that conventional path, that step-by-step path on how you're meant to do things. But I think the one advantage Jane has in that she's really already taken the road less traveled before. And I say that relating to what she mentioned about her time living in the US, which starts really well, but ends really badly. Leaving school, I grew up in the country. I went and studied to be a teacher, didn't last too long at that. And then I started with the technology industry in the early 1990s. So it was really very early in the days of home computers. And so I'd started in the hardware industry and I I was quite successful there and worked my way up the ranks, managed numerous states in Australia, lived in Darwin, Canberra, Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide. Brisbane for a second. Jane's partner at the time also worked in technology and was offered a really good job at a big company in New York and they gave her a job there too. And this was serious money, right? Yes, this was the dot-com boom. It just occurred to me, Jackie, you might not actually remember a time before the internet. No, not really, but I do remember when mum and dad first got a computer and mum was teaching farmers in town at workshops how to use a computer and I was you know it was probably just prior to primary school or the start of primary school for me. Mm, Wow yeah so in the late 90s and early 2000s 
as the internet like really took off, there was a tech race and, and fierce competition amongst the internet businesses. So we both moved to New York. And when I moved to New York, I then started working for a different arm of the organisation that was more around services. But anyway, long, long story short, we lived a ridiculous life over there. I look back now and think, wow. But it just sort of happened gradually. And I, I say ridiculous because he, we earned a lot of money and we were living in a $4 million house in New York. But, you know, that house, that style, house on five acres, that was, that was where we lived. You know, Ferraris in the driveway, flew on private planes. We had a 58-foot Italian yacht in the Huntington Harbour. It was nuts. And I look back now and it's embarrassing because it's like we it was it was crazy. We were actually in New York when September 11 happened. That was a really dramatic thing. And that changed, you know, the way you look at a lot of things, I think, changed the whole world. So when I started having kids, because at the time that I started having children, I was on an L, uh, I think it was called an L1 visa, which in the US, they didn't really give maternity leave. You had six weeks and you had to go back to work. And after six weeks with a five-week-old daughter smiling at me for the first time, I'm like, no, there's no way I'm ready to go back yet. And I was in the very fortunate situation that we obviously didn't need the cash. And so during that process, I did, I think, because that frustrated farmer gene was in there, I did all sorts of things. I planted, I think it was about seven or 8,000 bulbs in my garden because New York is really good weather for growing bulbs. Created a rose garden. I created a very impressive veggie garden that was like fully fenced with mounds and irrigation and <laughs> fox traps. Through that process, um, I needed something more to do. So that's when the project of the vineyard came up. So I was able to use our sort of access to money to buy the vineyard and have my sister, she was going to go and live there and work the vineyard because that's what she did in viticulture. And she was just starting to have her own family too. So this allowed her to work from home so she could continue working while still having children. And so that's how the sort of the project started. And it turns out it was a good thing Farmer Jane needed a project. The dot-com bubble burst and long story short, no more well-paying job, high salaries or luxury yachts. In fact, the final result was Jane landing back in Australia on her own with nothing left except that vineyard, which was pretty much worth nothing at the time. She did have her kids too, right? Yeah. And by then she actually had four. So four very young children. And she's gone from crazy rich New York life with a full-time nanny to going back to living with mom and dad. This was in 2006 that I came back and that was also a time of a wine glut in Australia where we had excess supply of grapes. So the timing was just brilliant, you know, coming back to Australia with no money, four kids and um, another grape <laughs> crisis in Australia. Gosh. So I landed back in, my parents were living in Adelaide and so um, I landed back at their nice little house with four extra kids and actually the house is not that small. We made it work. So it was a bit of a shock to the kids. You know, they got, this was their, it's all they knew. They, they were American. They were born in America. They'd lived, they, all their friends were American. They talked with little funny accents. And so then they got thrust into the Australian, Australian school system mid-term, mid mid-week. But that's where, you know, and I don't know if this is the way 
I think Australian families are different. I think Australian country families are different. It was not, never a question with my family about who's going to do what or what are we going to do. It was like, okay, what do we do to help? And that's sort of why I refer to it a bit by raised by village. You know, we lived with my parents for sort of two years while I tried to get back on my feet. We The farm wasn't earning enough to support me. So I had to then go and create a new career for myself, which I did, studied how to trade options and futures at nighttime. And I um, traded that on the US stock market while the kids were asleep because that was the only time I got to myself. And then I started teaching that for, there was a company that approached me to teach it because they thought I was pretty good at it. So I did that as well as the vineyard, but, and then we started creating the wine label. So once the wine label was sort of part of our product repertoire, then it was, you know, back into the vineyard, all hands on deck. So I sort of have been there during vintage and, you know, I sit on a tractor and all that sort of stuff. But then I've also had time off farm because I had to make money when the farm wasn't making enough to support two families. It it sort of strikes me that that little vineyard that you bought really has been a a lifesaver for you, you know, like just, just that piece of land that was there and what it is now for you. You must have this incredible emotional connection to it more so than the average person does to their farm. Yeah, that's really, that's really observant of you because that's, that's so true. Like that is all that, that, and it's not just me because my sister and my dad, we've all fought hard to, to retain that. And the easiest thing in the world at the time would have been to just walk away. And, you know, I, I know I could have got, I mean, I had a successful career before and I would have been able to do that again. I um, had a strong corporate experience and I had connections and all that sort of thing but if I went back to the job that I was good at that's traveling that's 70 hours a week working it's earning big money but they're not going to see their mother either and they're certainly not going to have a decent mother <laughs> like she'd be a cranky cow the vineyard's really important for so many reasons it gave us a pl- safe space to heal and to um, be the, for the kids to be normal kids yeah that little patch of dirt is very special and you know, with everything going on in the world, I think it's even more so. There's something about having a little piece of dirt that's tangible and that really gives you such a sense of place. Yeah, we're really lucky as rural women in that sense. Actually, our next guest has a really strong sense of place too and even forged a career as an author from it. That's right. Tanya Heaslip grew up on an outback cattle station in the Northern Territory back in the 60s. And like many of her female peers, she would have loved to have returned to where she grew up. But being a woman back then, it wasn't really an option. The property went to the males in the family. She could have just married the boy next door, you know, or the next 50 or 100 kilometres away. Ah, She could have. And that's probably what a lot of young country women did if they wanted to stay in the land. But Tanya basically did the opposite. She went on crazy adventures to faraway places, nearly died. But fortunately, Tanya lived to quite literally tell her tales. I grew up in Central Australia, right in the heart, in the beating heart, as they call it, of the Red Centre, on a cattle station to the north. And in the 60s and 70s, it was just a wild, free space. And so I grew up in complete isolation, really, hundreds of miles of space all around me, cattle, potty calves, um, little joeys, dogs, 
horses. They were my friends, along with my younger sister and two younger brothers. So it, I didn't know anything different. So to me, it seemed like the most normal thing in the world. It also seemed like paradise because we kids, like all kids in the bush, in the outback, had to learn to ride very early and we became an integral part of the stock camp and the workforce. And so when I wasn't doing school of the air and correspondence lessons, I was on the back of a horse, mustering cattle, doing yard work, fixing fences with dad, going out with the stockman, uh, and all in this space, this, you know, hundreds of miles of, of emptiness, just huge blue skies and big, beautiful red rocky mountains and gullies and paradise for a kid, really. Yeah, I, I love the outback. I'm sitting here in southwestern Victoria, which I often sort of joke is during winter it's basically like England but with gum trees like it's wet it's green it's you know very different to the outback but I do love the outback landscape and the outback really comes with challenges though of distance how far were you from the nearest you know decent sized town well actually we were really lucky our um, cattle station was the first station to the north of Alice but it was about a day trip in and out because we had Boggy creeks to cross tiny, rutted little narrow, curving, winding roads that had been first put in by, you know, an old Land Rover. Very winding, dangerous bitumen when we finally got to the main road into Alice. So, yeah, so it was about a day trip, about half a day and in and out. And, and we'd always get bogged or break down. So that isolation meant mum went to Alice Springs about once a month and she got stores to feed all the stockmen and the multitudes that lived on on the station and then she'd go via school of the air on her way home and bring us kids a box of books and for me that was just magic a box of library books from the school of the air was just the biggest treat in the world so every month we waited excitedly for that wow so did you get to go into alice much yourself as a kid or were you really much just very much on the station we were pretty much on the station um, and also we didn't like going into town. First of all, the trip was horrible. You know, it was long. We always got car sick. We kids had to sit in the back and we all fought. <laughs> there was nothing to do in town. You know, and Alice Springs was very tiny back then. I don't know, one to 2,000 people. And we'd just have to traipse around behind mum all day. She went to Elders GM and got the horse feed and then you know, went to Woolworths. And also dad didn't let us go very often because we were much more useful working back on the station. <laughs> so we, we went intermittently and never really out of desire. Your mum probably liked going on her own too. <laughs> a bit of a break. <laughs> Funny you should mention that. I, you know, why would she have loved four grumbling, whinging, cranky, fighting children hanging onto her skirts when it was her one chance of a month to get to town and meet other people? My mum was very extroverted, is still very extroverted, and uh, for her, that outing was just, she loved it. She couldn't get enough of it. So I think she was delighted when we weren't there cramping her style because literally she would walk down the main street. There was just one main street and she would stop about every every two minutes because she'd run into someone and then they'd chat and then another two minutes. So it was interminable for us and you know, joyful for her, especially when we weren't there. 
<laughs> I'll bet. Um, tell me about, so you did school the air, which you enjoyed. Um, then of course you would have gone to high school. What was that like for you? That was when my life turned upside down and everything changed. And it was a trauma that, to be honest, still lives inside me today, I think. So you imagine this wild, isolated bush child and my schooling was equally isolated. Then you transport that 12-year-old child when she's 12 for the first time ever away from her family, 1,600 kilometres south, to an all-girls boarding school that was like a Victorian prison. I went from jeans and boots, uh, which was my, and little shirts, that's what we wore every single day. Uh, That was our school uniform. And then all of a sudden I'm in a tunic and tight shoes and stockings and a tie in a dormitory, about 16 girls crying in my pillow every night, didn't know a soul. I didn't know how to sit in a classroom. I didn't know how to engage with other kids my own my own age or in fact apart from bush kids who I met through school of the air I didn't really know any other kids so I'd gone to another planet it was like going to Mars where there was nothing familiar and of course we had no telephone we only had the two-way radio so it was letters once a week we'd have to write home and once a week we'd get mum's letters but that uh, dislocation from the freedom and joy and space of being an outback kid to the confines of concrete and stone and high walls and gates and rules and punishments it was unbearable in uh, the homesickness was utterly crippling and I thought I'd die I I I thought I'd been sent to prison on another planet and I would die but of course nobody dies (laughs) at boarding school even if the food's so terrible that you think you will you know you you get through and you survive and what in the end it gave me, which is why all kids are sent from the bush to boarding school, is a is an education that's holistic. So you, you actually learn how to socialise and be with other people and learn about the outside world. But it took a long time and, you know, the legacies of being locked up in a boarding school and that desperate need for freedom still lives inside me. It's like a need for air. Wow. Do you think your parents knew at the time how you felt? Mm, they they did. And my father was very tough. He'd had to go to boarding school. He said, this is just how it is. Suck it up. And all bush kids knew there was no alternative. But for my mum, it was dreadful. She'd never been to boarding school. She didn't understand it. Her grief at losing me and then her, her eldest child and then her grief at reading of my homesickness and the bullying and the trauma that happened because I was this fish out of water. And she tried to contact the headmistress and she tried to make things better for me. But in those days, you sent your child to boarding school, clang, it was prison. You gave away your rights as a parent and you had no further say over what happened to your child inside. So the headmistress refused to take mum's calls. Nobody would deal with her. And so she she was in grief, immense, immense grief for the, the whole time. And I think that legacy still lives with her. But she she took the fire in the belly from that and she went on to build a school here, here in Alice Springs so that kids would have an option not to have to go away. So she she turned her grief and fire into something very positive, which is amazing. I think I love Tanya's mum. Yeah, what an amazing woman. Shout out to Jan Heaslip, who actually received an Order of Australia for her contribution to education. 
it now has 800 students and she designed the boarding house especially so that, that the big windows, there were big, had to be big windows and they had to look out on the rocks and the sky outside because she knew for kids sent away, the homesickness was not just a loss of parents, but the landscape itself, because that land, as all people who live on the land know, is engraved into you. So, yes, yeah, she did some amazing things. And so did Tanya. Yeah, while she hated boarding school, she had one teacher who really changed the course of her life. Well, for most of the time, all I wanted to do was go back to the land um, and all bush kids, I think, who went to boarding school felt that way. But this extraordinary thing happened to me in fourth year, year 11. A, a wonderful teacher. How often is it you hear of a wonderful teacher? And mine was Mrs Howe and she taught modern European history. And she taught me the history of all these European lands that had featured in my School of the Air books all those years ago. So I'd read stories of England and Switzerland and children having adventures there. And then suddenly she was telling me about the history. And I thought, I really want to go and see these places. They were the places of my storybooks. They were places where there were mountains with snow on them and um, meadows with daffodils and green fields and woods and oak trees. And um, I mean, they all actually exist in Australia, but I didn't know that. I thought they only existed in, you know, Heidi, Switzerland and Enid Blyton's England. And so I just wanted to see them. And Mrs. Howe gave me this insight into the history which of course has been you know horrific especially the 20th century modern history of Europe and I was fascinated and consumed by it and I thought right I, as soon as I can that's what I want to do I want to go overseas and see these overseas lands and this was 1978 so that was a very unusual thing for any girl back then to want to do because travel just wasn't the norm. Yeah, it was very expensive and a lot of women were, were sort of finishing school and um, getting mm. married, I suppose. So, so what did right. you do after school? Well, that was the other great thing about boarding school. It did. I was a very bookish child, so it gave me the chance for an education. And so I went to law school, to university, studied and practiced law. And so to this day, I, I still practice law. It's, it's interesting. I've, I, I've never loved law. And I've tried to leave it so many times, but it's actually been this amazing background because it set me up to do things. So uh, after I'd practised for about six years or however many it was, I then finally had earned enough money that I could go to Europe. And so I went to Europe in 1989 and took a whole year off law, which again was unprecedented. Like Nobody did that, especially women. If you got a career um, back then, you got into it and you worked your little hard out but no I it was that longing for freedom and distant lands and the lure of travel just pulled me on. I think it's fair to say Jackie that Tanya's version of going to Europe wasn't the one year working in London trip that a lot of Aussies do these days. Although Tanya was in London for a very historic event. I happened to be in London as the Berlin Wall fell. Now from having done modern European history, no one ever thought that communism could fall and that the Berlin Wall might might crumble, but it did. And so I got to Berlin and I saw it with my own eyes. I got the last two tickets with a friend of mine into Berlin so that we could see history rewriting itself before our eyes because it was so astonishing and unbelievable. And I came back with my bit of wall and I was broke, so I had to go back and do some more law. But then I just really decided I've now seen Western Europe I want to see Eastern Europe. I want to know 
what's on the other side of that wall and the, the lands that Mrs. Howe had told me you know, were captured by communism. And so after another four years, I ran into a, a friend of a friend who was a barrister and long story short, he found me a job teaching English in a country town in Czechoslovakia. Now I knew nothing about Czechoslovakia and this was 1994, we had no internet. I mean, I knew it from modern European history, but that was about it. Uh, and I didn't have any teaching experience, but I thought, hey, this is my chance. So I jumped and I, I flew to what had then become the Czech Republic because Czech and Slovakia had split. And I ended up living there for two and a half years. And again, law came in handy because I ended up teaching the Minister of Justice and judges of the High Court and the um, Deputy for International Legal Relations and worked on these extraordinary human rights issues and loved it, loved it, loved it. So going to Prague and spending two and a half years, it, it was yet another one of those extraordinary game changes that did completely change my life forever because when I came back from that, I mean, I had to continue to practice law, but that set me onto my writing career because then I thought I really want to tell the story of the Czechs because I don't know anyone in Australia who knows it. And so that was, um, I left there at the start of 96 and I've been back over and over again. We'll talk about the writing in a second, but I'm noticing the thread here is you discovering something and then going, yep, I want to do that. And, and then just kind of following that path. It, it's, a unique way of, of looking at the world and probably a good one <laughs> because I think so many of us almost have this kind of list of things that we're meant to be doing, we should be doing. How do you break away from that? Because that can be really scary. I mean, going to live yes. in Czechoslovakia and not knowing what's going to happen, um, what you're going to yes. come back to afterwards, it's not an easy thing to do. No, and for most people, paralysis by analysis would stop them doing that because the risks were far greater than the rewards. If I thought every time I jumped, if I'd actually thought about the risks, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have done it. I mean, going to Europe for a whole year, I backpacked on my own in 1989. There were almost no women that I knew. I think maybe one in Australia I knew personally who'd done that. You know, my, my poor mother, she was you know, just distraught. Again, there was no communication. You went and that was it. There were the letters. Um, I think I was propelled by curiosity, always propelled by curiosity. And I had this great desire for adventure and freedom. And I put that down to the storybooks I read as a child. I think the freedom of the outback and the fact that in the outback, you have to do anything. It's 40 degrees, you're out there all alone. You have to muster the, you know, the plant paddock by yourself and meet the others at the edge of um, 15 mile gate and you, you're a little kid and you've got hundreds of cattle you've got to muster on your own and bring to the gate you have no choice and you can't fail and you can't back down and it's so you have to learn coping skills to do that so none of my decisions Kirsten were rational or well planned out or considered none of them so I don't know whether it's a good thing just to jump but I've always jumped and found out how to manage things as I've gone along is means you have a lot of scraped knees and bruised hands very often bruised heart it's terrible for your bank balance and you know it's got a lot of downsides but it means you explore life so 
I just think if people are curious about things, if they're interested, have a go. Why not? What is the worst thing that can happen? Actually, don't ask yourself that because (laughs) maybe what are the great things that could happen? I think that's, I was just driven by what are the exciting things that could happen when I was there? But it wasn't all fun and exciting times for Tanya. For me, the hardest time was the isolation. I'd been in Czechoslovakia, or had become the Czech Republic, about a month. And I started in this country town called Sedlčany. Now, this town had not moved on from about 1930 or 1940. And it was as though communism still controlled these huge, grey, what they call panelak, terrible, hideous uh, Eastern Bloc Tower buildings that people hundreds and thousands of people were shoved in like rabbits to live and I'd arrived in February and they only had brown coal for heating now I don't know if anyone's ever smelt brown coal but it's the cheap inferior version and the smell of it just it's like terrible tar and it just turns your stomach and this town was built at the bottom of a valley so in winter there was all this smoke the valley got filled with smoke Nobody inside could breathe and all, and heaps of people died of respiratory issues or were constantly sick. And so I was there maybe two weeks and I was so sick. I lost my voice. Um, I could hardly breathe. You know, it was chest, it, the lot, the whole respiratory night. My body never experienced anything so toxic. And I'm in this bed in this little room on the seventh floor of this tower block. There's hundreds and thousands of people there who won't look at me, won't speak to me because I'm foreign. And I stood out like a sore thumb. I was the only foreign person there in the entire town. And I had no communication out. And this place was still felt like it was run by the communists and there were people who watched you and there were people who monitored your every move. And I was so sick and I thought, I'm going to die and I'm going to die here And no one will ever know because I can't get a message to anyone. I'm completely trapped. I'm on the other side of the world inside this communist town that nobody in the West has heard of. And I'm so ill and I don't have a voice and I can't speak the language. I can't talk to anyone. I can't call for help. I don't have a telephone. I'm going to die here. And I did think to myself, why have I brought myself back to a place that has all these similarities to boarding school um, when I didn't have a choice as a child, but I have a choice now. What am I doing here? That didn't help me either. There's a lot of self-flagellation that, that didn't help. But that was terrifying and that was several weeks and basically I was left alone to die. I mean, if I died, I would have died. And I just had this vision of my body being dumped down the gulag prison, you know, big hole in the ground and no one would ever know that I'd been there. So you just got better so, on your own basically, like you just pulled through it somehow well in the end what saved me actually was I was working at a high school and there were a couple of really kind teachers there and one eventually found me and then I was saved because she took me to her home and then she got medicine that is actually what's what saved me I wouldn't have got better on my own at all so I was incredibly thankful that that she did but for the rest the rest of the teachers, I was an imposter. You know, I represented the Wicked West. So that 
that teacher I shall love to this day. <laughs> yeah, saved your life. Wow, what an incredible story. So let's let's go back to, to Alice Springs, which is where you are now and, and where you obviously ended up. And, and it's what you, yes. you've written about in your books a lot is, a, you know, a girl from Alice. And yes, why did you decide to write about Alice Springs? Growing up, it wasn't extraordinary to you. At what point did you understand that actually it was quite a unique childhood? Well, that's such an interesting question, Kirsten, because to this day, it still feels normal to me and it doesn't feel extraordinary. Um, I just wanted to write, write stories. And then, of course, law destroys that because, you know, law's all, of you know, left brain, right brain, whatever the creative side is, law takes that away. So I stopped writing. But when I came back um, from Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic, I was so passionate about telling the stories of the Czechs. That's what started me writing. But I, I, it took 15 years and I couldn't get anywhere and I'd show people. And in the end, an editor said to me, you need to weave your story in there because it's the contrast between Central Australia and Central Europe that is so fascinating why you went there. And then actually the similarities that you felt in lots of ways, they were so isolated, you were so isolated. And that's what led to the first book called Alice to Prague, which has my back um, growing up here in Alice, you know, loads and loads of those stories interwoven through it, contrasted with the Czech experiences. And so I wrote that. And then the publisher said, well, look, you think still that Central Europe is so exotic, but actually Central Australia is as exotic to most Eastern seaboarders in Australia because some of them have seen Europe but not even seen Central Australia. So they persuaded me to write about my upbringing here and I said, I don't even know where to start because it felt so normal. But I started collecting stories and then they came flooding back. Uh, so I wrote an Alice Girl about my upbringing and they that covered the, the time frame from um, zero to 12 years of age and it ended with me going to boarding school so then the next question was well we need to know what happened at boarding school so that led to book three which is called Beyond Alice and so that's how it it started not because I actually intended to write about the childhood but wanting to write about Prague then I had to write about Alice and then the rest flowed. And that's it for another episode of Ducks on the Pond. Jackie I feel like we've been on a wild ride listening to these two women's stories. Yeah, I think there's a reason why it's called The Road Less Travelled because not everyone is cut out for it. What I really love about Tanya and Jane's story is that they've come through the crazy ups and downs of their younger years and are now really putting that drive and resilience into their passions. Yeah, I think that's the key to their success. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to our guests, Tanya Heaslip and Jane Richards. Jane's wine brand is called Eight at the Gate and Tanya's new book is out. It's called Beyond Alice, which tells the story of her distressing yet formative boarding school years. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Please leave a review or tell a friend. Or do both. <laughs> Wait before we go, Jackie. Our next episode, uh, we should say, will be our last, at least for this season. It will. And we'll be looking at how other rural women help change your perceptions, including through social media and other platforms sharing their stories. Yeah, so we'll be really looking at those gender roles, challenging gender roles, and, and how to tell your own story, which is kind of what this whole podcast is about. And you had been planning an awesome Rural Women's Day event, but COVID's had other plans. 
Yeah, and look, even though COVID had other plans, there's still going to be lots of opportunity on International Day of Rural Women next week, October 15, for other women to share their stories through social media. And so we'll be giving some tips on social media, including tips from you because you're very good at social media. It is something I'm really passionate about and I think it's a great way to connect. Awesome. Well, I know I'm looking forward to next episode, so we'll catch you then. Bye.